Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. My son, who's two, wanted this book of knock-knock jokes, which is ridiculous because the whole thing is completely over his head, and yet we read the book as if it's like a gratifying story. So here's one from that. Knock-knock. Who's there? Theodore. Theodore who? Theodore wasn't open, so I knocked. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Miranda July that'll help break the ice. Yes. She has a new novel out, and we'll hear her read from it later. Plus, we chat with superstar architect Frank Gehry. Also coming up, we learn why some people put butter in their coffee. It's not an accident. And we speak with the international mega superstar of the stage, Dame Edna. Who apparently now writes our dialogue as well. She slipped that line right in there. Hmm. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama laid out an ambitious agenda in his State of the Union address. King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia has died. Controversy has blown up in the NFL over deflated footballs. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She is a senior editor at Fast Company magazine. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about one of the strangest cases of deja vu in medical history. I feel like I've heard this before. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> <man>. <laughs> no, what's going on? Um, well, it's actually, it is sort of funny, but also sad. Um, there's a 23-year-old man in England who has a terrible case of deja vu. And unlike most other diagnosed cases, it's not because of a brain injury. He just had anxiety. How does he experience this? He just constantly thinks that he's seen or heard everything before? Yes. And I mean, apparently he first reported this problem in 2007. The study notes um, he experienced it in different ways. He thinks he's in a permanent time travel loop. Um, he can't watch TV or movies because he thinks he's seen them all before. No, wait, um, isn't that just cynicism? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You may right? be right, I mean, you guys. Maybe he's just jaded. And I mean, cynical. he is the ultimate indie rock snob for sure. Because <laughs> he's seen it all before. <laughs> oh, no. Exactly. Oh, this poor but, yeah. gentleman, though. It's weird. It seems like that knowing what's happened would calm your anxiety. Maybe it's the brain trying to... Oh, to chill you out. Yeah, yeah. to relax. Well, whatever it is, it's not working for him. He had to drop out of college. If you had deja vu in college, you should pretty much ace every test, right? Because you've seen the questions before. You know what? (laughs) Yeah, I imagine the next step is (laughs) re-enrolling with straight A's. See, there is a silver lining. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Rehan Harmansi, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for cocktails. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about one of the strangest cases of deja vu in medical history. No, really, it's time for cocktails. This is the part of the show when we tell you a true tale from history, then give you a fitting drink to serve with it. It's our internationally respected history lesson with booze. First, the history part around this time back in 1709, a great literary legend was discovered. Or the guy who inspired a literary legend anyway. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Daniel Defoe's fictional hero, Robinson Crusoe, was a castaway. But the guy on whom he was based was more like a runaway. He was a Scot named Alexander Selkirk, and he had good reason to flee his circumstances. See, in 1704, he set sail with some mercenaries to wage war against the Spanish. 
But after a few battles, he realized his captain was nuts and the ship was ready to sink. So when they sailed past the South Pacific island of Masa Tierra, Selkirk insisted the crew just leave him there, which they did all alone with nothing but clothes, a few tools, tobacco, and a Bible. Selkirk survived by hunting and eating goats. He slept near feral cats so rats wouldn't attack him at night. One day, he spotted a ship and ran out to greet it, but it turned out to be Spanish and they shot at him. That was his only human contact for over four years. But in February 1709, rescue! When British sailors saw his signal fire and came ashore. Luckily, one of them was on Selkirk's original expedition. So he knew the quote, wild man they found, dressed in goatskins, was actually their countryman. Some question whether Selkirk's story inspired Robinson Crusoe. But it's accepted enough that Masa Tierra was later renamed Robinson Crusoe Island. One thing's for sure, Selkirk made the right decision to stay there. His original ship sank off the coast of Peru, and the few survivors spent years in jail. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for a drink to go along with it, and we've gone all the way to Edinburgh in Scotland, it's not too far from Lower Largo, where Alexander Selkirk is from. And on the line is Trafford Murphy. He's bartender at 52 Canoes Tiki Den. Trafford, thanks so much for joining us. No problem at all. It's my pleasure. What is a tiki bar doing in Edinburgh? Well, since Edinburgh is really, really cold, we've decided to bring the sun to Edinburgh. All right, that sounds like a good strategy. And it's perfect for our purposes because I imagine that uh, Alexander Selkirk had some tiki situation going on there. 100%. What drink did you come up with? We've taken a traditional Scottish drink called the Blood and Sand, and we've put a tiki twist on it and taken it to the South Pacific. The reason I chose this drink is because I'm using the blood as his kind of fight for survival on the island. All right. And the sand, the actual island itself. And I imagine with all those those feral cats and those rats, there was a bit of blood just around him on the island. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He was a warrior. <laughs> He's Scottish. You're all warriors over there? Even the guys um, in the tiki bars with big Hawaiian print shirts? Oh, uh, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what we've done, we've taken the blood and sand, we've taken it to Scotch whiskey, and we've replaced it with Ronza Kappa 23 which is a premium rum from the Pacific. And we've also put a little mix of Puss's Navy rum, as Alexander was a sailor. Okay. We also add sweet vermouth. Now we get to the blood part, um, so <laughs> some blood orange juice. Okay. Just to finish it off, we've gone with three dashes of orange bitters, just to give it a nice depth. And we've served it in a little, like, milk bottle with an orange twist. A milk bottle. So is this something like you would put an SOS letter in if you were exactly. stuck in Exactly. So like, like message in a bottle, something <laughs> All overboard. Right. Yes. So Trafford, I have a question for you. If you were stuck in an island, what items would you want with you? A bottle of rum, a spoon, Okay. A glass and some orange bitters, 100%. <laughs> I'd be, be a happy man if I, if I died on an island with a bottle of rum and some orange bitters. <laughs> so, Rico, I read up on Robinson Crusoe Island. All right. About 800 people live there now. They get hundreds of tourists a year. There are scuba diving tours. So man, if Crusoe had just waited a couple more centuries to get marooned there. 
he would have been fine. Yeah, he'd be okay. <laughs> it's all about the timing. And his beard would have been trendy. Oh, folks, you can find all our cocktail recipes on our internet island. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made small talk, had a drink. All this party lacks is some music. And for that, we turn to Nashville musician Natalie Prass. Her clear, confessional 70s-style songs led many outlets, including Time and Pitchfork, to predict she'll be a breakout star of 2015. Here she is with song suggestions for your next party. Hi, my name's Natalie Prass, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. So my first pick for my dinner party is a duo called Wendy and Bonnie, and this song is called Endless Pathway. Wendy and Bonnie are actually teenagers from the suburbs of San Francisco. Bonnie actually plays drums, and this was their only record that they made. These girls are awesome. This record uh, is called Genesis, beautiful harmonies. When you're singing with your sister, there's just this undeniable unifying quality that you just can't, you can't do that with everybody. My dinner party, I'm, I'm imagining it's my girlfriend's coming over. It's just uh, maybe the weekend. <laughs> so this is a good one for everybody walking in, getting a cocktail, hanging out, catching up kind of thing. My next song is a female trio called King. It's actually two sisters in this group as well. And this song is called Supernatural. Oh, we I chose them because they have undeniably chill energy. You can just tell they're just really genuine, cool people. I listen to a lot of female singers, and I really gravitate towards the singers that don't have to kind of overcompensate and be too showy. I should have walked up. really delicate. That's why I love Dionne Warwick so much, Diana Ross, just these really pure voices. And King is kind of like the modern version of that. King released an EP on SoundCloud recently. Prince's manager emailed them and said, do you want to meet Prince? Just one sentence. Anyway, they've ended up singing backgrounds for Prince. So the moral of that story is maybe if you release a three-song EP on SoundCloud, Prince's manager will reach out to you and ask you to sing backgrounds for him. My third song is... The most amazing R&B 1986 feel-good anthem by Anita Baker, and it's called Caught Up in the Rapture. Oh my god, the, the little scat intro she does. It just feels so good. The song, it's 80s glory. The band is so great. The bass, when he's just 
playing like one note, boom, 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 but everybody else is moving is amazing. And Anita Baker has a very sultry, low, pure voice, and she is a R&B goddess. This is the part, you know, we're all cleaning and we're doing dishes and we're dancing and singing together, and that's, that's when this song is playing. We are ending my dinner party soundtrack with one of my own songs, and this one is called Bird of Prey. You poked me from the vine. It's kind of about somebody that just won't leave you alone. Maybe you wanted that at some point, but then it just started to get a little out of hand. Hopefully that person is not at your dinner party. Dinner Party soundtrack from Natalie Prass. Her self-titled debut album comes out this week. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up later, star architect Frank Gehry just wants to be pals. I try to make friendly architecture. (laughs) That and more when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, artist, author, and filmmaker Miranda July unveils a sad system for living. And later, renowned architect Frank Gehry asks this question. Do you think I'm a prima donna? And it's to help folks politely answer such questions that we created our weekly etiquette segment. So let's get to that right away. All right. Each week, listeners sending questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is the international super goddess of the stage, Dame Edna Everidge. Uh, 50 years ago, she was discovered by Australian comedian Barry Humphreys, and she happens to look a little bit like him, by the way. Yes, which we're sure is just a total coincidence. She's since toured the world multiple times over in her own one-woman shows. She has published an autobiography. In Australia, she's so beloved, there's a street named after her in Melbourne. Wow. And she won a special Tony Award for the show Dame Edna, the Royal Tour. Alas, she now says she's calling it quits, and this weekend, her farewell tour hits Los Angeles for a six-week run before rolling across America. Dame Edna, it's an honor to be here with you. Truly. Well, hello, boys. It's lovely to be on your program. Oh, we just feel blessed in it a is. lot of ways. Well, you are blessed because I'm very... <laughs> no, I do very little publicity. I don't need to. True. And in fact, I don't need to do these shows. I do them out of resentment. Your stage shows? What, why, what do you resent? Resentment that Mother Nature has not given me the strength... To perform until I'm 100 years of age, uh, mm. but you're I now... can't keep on doing it. No, no, you're 30 years old at this point, and it's just really—it no, starts to take don't a toll. Don't be sarcastic, please. <laughs> We've only just met Rico. <laughs> manners. This show is about good manners, isn't it? Well, this part this of the portion show. is. Yes. I'm surprised you get viewers. I mean. What Americans are interested in good manners? <laughs> None of them. Incidentally, listeners, and I, I call you viewers because there are people 
troubled people, really, who watch the radio. <laughs> yeah. They watch it in the hope that someone like me will pop out of it. Exactly. <laughs> It's sad, isn't it? Once you, the show hasn't opened here yet, so we have not had a chance to see it. What do you have in store for us and for America? I have in store, really, a spiritual experience for mm. people. Mm. Expected. Uh, there's singing, there's dancing, of course. I'm a well-known singer. I'm a famous dancer. Uh, well, in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> and once you've made it there. <laughs> and if you've made it there, possum. <laughs> And incidentally, I call my audiences possums. Yeah, why is that? Because in Australia, they're very lovely, cuddly things. Oh. In America, they're feral. Again, <laughs> they need a lesson in good manners. <laughs> so you, you did another farewell tour in 2012. No, no. No? I'm not one of those people like Barbara, I shouldn't mention her name, oh, well, who keep touring now. farewell shows. No. It was to prepare the audience for uh, a subsequent farewell tour. The, the penultimate goodbye tour. The penultimate. Mm. That's the word. Oh. Listeners, viewers, <laughs> whatever category you're in, I am in the presence of wordsmiths here. Yes. <laughs> People who use the language. Uh, Dame Edna, our possums have submitted questions for you, etiquette questions. Are you ready to help answer well, them? Well, I certainly would if I can help Americans. I love America, and I should hasten to say, Brendan, and to some extent to say to you too, Rico, <laughs> that America, not many people in the world know about you. <laughs> yep. hmm. The United States is one of the world's best-kept secrets. Yep. We're backwater. <laughs> they don't but... know where it is. I have to tell people. I say, you ah. fly from Australia to Europe, and it's if you look down, that's America. <laughs> yes, but as more and more Australians come here, we're rapidly gentrifying. So you it's are. Been... You've got Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Nicole Kidman. Got, of course, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman. Yes, we're on we our way up. We are dominating. Woody Allen, we are dominating <laughs> the American entertainment world. Famous Australian Woody Allen. <laughs> um, let's get to some of these questions. Here's something from David Bollier in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, David. And David writes, in a meeting setting, how is one supposed to to tactfully mention to the meeting attendees that finger tapping slash knuckle cracking slash ice chewing slash nonstop pen clicking are unpleasant distractions. A lot of things bother David. Well, they do. And you forgot to mention gum chewing, ah, David. Yes, gum cracking. Mm -hmm. When I'm on the stage, as I will be soon at the Amundsen Theatre in Los Angeles, <laughs> mm, I'd heard about in that. In case these boys forget to mention it, <laughs> I look down and I see slobs. Oh. People who don't dress to go to a show, wearing dirty trainers, tracksuits. The fact is, <laughs> people need to dress and look nice for the theatre. And if they're in a meeting, when they're chewing, this chewing thing, you know where it comes from, don't you? Where, do, where does it come from? The habit of Americans to chew comes because they were weaned too early. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> and they are nibbling on an invisible breast, frankly. <laughs> wow. I'm never going to look wow. at somebody chewing That's gum the same way thinking. again. That's what they're thinking. In their back of their minds, wow. they are, fascinating. They're, they've got their mummy leaning over them, <laughs> and they are they're working, working away at her chest. Oh, goodness. Oh, oh no. And that's why they chew. So, Dame Edna, so, how is one supposed to get the people doing this in front of you to stop? Yes. Look. What is wrong with honesty? Honesty. 
Just say, stop that at once, or you're out of this room and out of a job. <laughs> what if David's not the boss? If he's not the boss... Well, you have to. You probably can't imagine, can you, David? I can't imagine <laughs> not being in charge. That's all. Anyway, that's your David. I think your answer is there somewhere. You just tell them to knock it Any off. Any more questions? Or you're going to lose your job. We do have another question. I'm yes. in the mood. I need more questions. Okay, all right. Great. This question comes from Becky Ayers from Cincinnati, Ohio. And Becky writes, I'm a mid-level supervisor for an agency in the federal government. Hmm. I'm also pretty soft-spoken at times. How do I correct people when I'm interrupted without showing my obvious aggravation. Fall silent for a very, very long time. Mm. Have you ever done that? No, I've never tried <laughs> falling silent because people never interrupt me. And I'm not soft-spoken or I wouldn't be heard in the back row of the beautiful Amundsen Theatre <laughs> in Los Angeles. But fall silent or else yawn. Yawn. <laughs> you can yawn. While they're talking... Yeah. Just yawn so they can actually glimpse your uvula. <laughs> and I don't think your uvula, Becky, has been glimpsed often enough. No. Speak up, Becky. And uh, yawning, something you will definitely not see at Dame Edmund's farewell tour. Oh, you won't. Oh, you're, you're, well, you're having a tour, Dame Edmund? <laughs> oh, I Wait, am. What? I'm going for Oh, We're out of time, though. We can't hear about where this show is. We're running out of time. But thank you for oh, coming by and telling the audience me. how to behave, Thank Dame you for Edmund. tricking me into coming on this show and not advertising my tour. <laughs> not nearly enough. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you very much, little Rico, and thank you, Brendan having us at your place. Dame Edna Everidge. Apparently her farewell tour lands this weekend in Los Angeles and will be rolling out across the country. You can check dinnerpartydownload.org for details. And while you're there, possums, you can submit your etiquette questions. Head to the website and click contact. eavesdrop. Miranda July's film Me and You and Everyone We Know won the camera door at Cannes. She's also a respected artist and author. Her short tales of dreamers and eccentrics often appear in The New Yorker. Her debut novel just came out. Today we overhear an excerpt. My name is Miranda July. I'm the author of The First Bad Man. The part I'm about to read, our main character, Cheryl, is in her 40s. She lives alone. She's always lived alone, and she's very set in her ways. And she gets a phone call, some unwelcome news that her boss's daughter is going to have to stay with her. So can you take her, Jim said. When you live alone, people are always thinking they can stay with you when the opposite is true. Who they should stay with is a person whose situation is already messed up by other people, and so one more won't matter. I really wish I could help out, I said. This isn't coming from me. It's Carl and Suzanne's idea. I think they kind of wonder why you didn't offer in the first place, since you're practically family, he said. I pressed my lips together. They said I was practically family, I asked. When is this happening? She'll come with her stuff later tonight. I have an important private phone call this evening, I said. Thanks a bunch, Cheryl, he said. I carried my computer out of the ironing room and set up a cot that is more comfortable than it looks. I folded a washcloth on top of a hand towel on top of a bath towel and placed them on a duvet cover that she was welcome to use over her comforter. 
I put a sugarless mint on top of the washcloth. I windexed all the bath and sink taps so they looked brand new and also the handle of the toilet. I put my fruit in a ceramic bowl so I could gesture to it when I said, eat anything, pretend this is your home. The rest of the house was perfectly in order, as it always is, thanks to my system. It doesn't have a name, I just call it my system. Let's say a person is down in the dumps or maybe just lazy and they stop doing the dishes. Soon the dishes are piled sky high and it seems impossible to even clean a fork. So the person starts eating with dirty forks out of dirty dishes and this makes the person feel like a homeless person. So they stop bathing, which makes it hard to leave the house. The person begins to throw trash anywhere and pee in cups because they're closer to the bed. We've all been this person, so there's no place for judgment. But the solution is simple. Fewer dishes. They can't pile up if you don't have them. This is the main thing, but also stop moving things around. How much time do you spend moving objects to and fro? Before you move something far from where it lives, remember you're eventually going to have to carry it back to its place. Is it really worth it? Can't you read the book standing right next to the shelf with your finger holding the spot you'll put it back into? Or better yet, don't read it. Dinner time, skip the plate. Just put the pan on a hot pad on the table. Plates are an extra step you can do for guests to make them feel like they're at a restaurant. We all do most of these things some of the time. With my system, you do all of them all of the time. Never don't do them. Before you know it, it's second nature, and the next time you're down in the dumps, it operates on its own. Like a rich person, I live with a full-time servant who keeps everything in order. And because the servant is me, there's no invasion of privacy. At its best, my system gives me a smoother living experience. My days become dreamlike, no edges anywhere, none of the snags and snafus that life is so famous for. After days and days alone, it gets silky to the point where I can't even feel myself anymore. It's as if I don't exist. Miranda July reading from her new debut novel, The First Bad Man. That passage was edited for time, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. And Brendan, the latest health food, butter and coffee. At last, a diet America can get behind. It's here. (laughs) Butter coffee has become a fad food in some circles, thanks mainly to a company called Bulletproof and its founder. His name is Dave Asprey. They sell special coffee plus oils to put in it. And they say it's a kind of superfood, especially as part of a diet regimen they espouse. Hmm. And they just announced that they're going to open a Bulletproof Cafe in Santa Monica. Where else? Where else? So I met with Brent Rose. He writes about food, tech, and health for Wired, Gizmodo, many more. And he's been researching butter coffee. We got some pre-brewed Bulletproof from a health food store. And I first asked, what is the recipe for butter coffee? Coffee plus butter. (laughs) Go figure. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, but it's not like you can take a stick of butter and just drop it in your coffee. You could do that, but you kind of would end up with this big oil slick on top of your coffee, which may not be the most appealing thing. If you blend it, it helps to emulsify it a little bit more. It's not just butter in this coffee that we're about to drink, though, right? That's right. So this is bulletproof coffee. It's this proprietary coffee. 
and then there's uh, butter, and then there's this stuff called MCT oil. And that's um, an oil that's found in coconut oil, palm oil, and stuff like that. The Bulletproof company will sell you this stuff called Brain Octane. As far as I understand, it is just MCT oil, but four times as expensive as it could be. All right, first of all, let's sip some. We have some before us, and I'm gonna open up the lid. And it looks like, I don't know, I mean, it looks like regular coffee with cream in it, but yeah, in the light, there is a slick of oil on top of it. Yeah. Is this going to be good? Uh, I actually think it's pretty tasty. All right, bottoms up. It actually tastes kind of what I imagined it would taste like. It does taste like coffee with butter, like clarified butter. I have that feeling on my lips after I've had uh, buttered popcorn. Yeah, that's exactly right. On your lips, it feels like you just used a lot of lip gloss because there's a lot of fat in it. So what is the supposed benefit of drinking this other than its flavor, which is, uh, you know, it's perfectly fine. I mean, the claims that these guys are making are, it's a fat burner, melts off the pounds, essentially. Um, They're also claiming uh, it's like a super drink for your brain to help uh, you sustain focus and clarity. Wait, isn't that what plain coffee does? That's right, but he's claiming that the coffee plus the oil and the butter and all that stuff, it's working together in tandem to give you this sustained mental clarity and laser-like focus. Basically, you don't have the coffee crash 20 minutes later or whatever. Yeah, but strong. They're saying it works stronger. The caffeine will be stronger because of the fat. My understanding is that you've tested, you put this stuff to the test. Is it true? So, and full disclosure, I didn't use the special beans. I used, you know, a a regular nice cup of coffee from a local cafe, some grass-fed butter, and I got some MCT oil that I just bought at a health food store as well. And uh, what they're suggesting you do with the, the Bulletproof diet is that you substitute this for your breakfast. You don't eat any food with breakfast, you just have this super duper coffee that'll sustain you through lunch, you, you won't be hungry, you'll have amazing focus and productivity. And did it work? I mean, I felt very caffeinated, for sure. Um, it maybe did sustain a little bit longer than it might have, and there are some interesting scientific reasons why that could potentially be true. Like? Well, theoretically, and I'm not even sure this is something that they're claiming, but caffeine is not just water-soluble, but it's also fat-soluble. So when you're blending it, it's possible that some of the caffeine gets pulled into the fat molecules because fat takes us a long time to digest. It could sort of act as a time release in our stomach, sort of giving you a more extended dose throughout the day rather than all at once, maybe. But I was hungry, despite the fact that this is, you know, a ton of saturated fat, 140% of your daily saturated fat before you've taken a single bite of food, you know? And that also is liable to play havoc on your digestive system. Like, it can act as a laxative. Say no more. So now let's go back to the first of these claims, which is that it will actually burn fat. That's the claim. And there is evidence to support that coconut oil, which is where you get the main source in nature of uh, MCT oil, does help raise your good cholesterol and lower your bad cholesterol. So there's some of that. There is a possibility that, you know, the fat in your diet does not necessarily equal fat on your body. But there is also, again, too much of a good thing, especially all at once. You know, 140% of your daily saturated fat, we may do that anyway through the course of our day, especially here in America. But there's no indication that doing it all at once, first thing in the morning, is a good thing. Well, but on the other hand, I heard that uh, this drink is kind of descended from a drink that they've been drinking in Tibet for a very long time. Yeah, so uh, you're talking about yak butter tea which has been consumed in Tibet and uh, other parts of Nepal for, you know, 
millennia. And that's where this guy who invented bulletproof coffee got the idea. He's just a coffee fiend. And so he's like, I wonder if I can apply this to coffee. All right, well, if it's good for Tibet, why, why might it not be good for us? Again, I think we're talking about quantity here. It may be good for them. I don't know the ratios that they are using. I think they have a lot more vegetables in their diet, generally, than we do as well. Yeah, the super healthy monks eat a lot of vegetables, but that won't give you a buzz. Probably not, no. <laughs> So, Brendan, sadly, it seems putting butter and coffee together probably won't solve all of our problems. Hmm. What if I put pizza and Coke? Oh. Will that work? <laughs> it's worth a shot. <laughs> all right. I'm on it. Do it. Uh, folks, <laughs> coming up, acclaimed architect Frank Gehry makes minimalist music. <laughs> clink, clink. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll chat with the director of White Earth, an Oscar-nominated short about a North Dakota town of the same name. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's star architect Frank Gehry. In 1997, the great curving metal structures of his Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain, blew the world's collective mind. It's considered one of the most important buildings of the century, but Gary's been blowing mind since the 70s with the design of his own house, which is basically a pre-existing bungalow he wrapped with industrial materials like corrugated metal and chain-link fence. That house has now inspired a musical piece by composer Andrew Norman called Frank's House. It features chain link fence and corrugated metal as instruments. Here's an example Andrew sent us. The L.A. Chamber Orchestra debuts Frank's House next Thursday, February 5th. It seemed like a good excuse to visit Frank Gehry at his office and talk to him about the interplay between music and architecture and about his career. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for coming. I'll give you a softball to start with. What kind of music do you like? What's your favorite type of music? As I've gotten older, classical music I find more interest in. I grew up as a kid listening to classical music. Somehow it's always been in my life. Even though I'm not a musician, I don't can't recognize everything. Some, I can recognize Mahler sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can imagine you either liking you know, something like John Cage, which explodes form, or somebody like Bach, which has got very rigid form. Do you tend towards one or the other? When I was in college uh, studying architecture, I used to listen to Bach a lot. There was some structure to it. I was designing buildings for the first time in my life, so that made sense, right? As I grew older, I became more interested in Pierre Boulez. Watching him conduct, we didn't wave his arms like some conductors or very little but the passion that was in it was so visible that you could feel it and you feel it in the music minimalism a lot of it is without passion it just dries everything out this guy was super passionate in a very minimal way and i loved that i was very attracted to it that has some impact on your work? Because I can imagine it would. Probably, and it reminds me of Gaga Koo. When I was a lot younger, I studied Gaga Koo 
how to play in a gagaku orchestra at UCLA. What is that? Gagaku is imperial court music from Japan. Wow. And I played an instrument that looked like a frying pan hung in a frame, and I had two mallets, and I had to go clink, clink. So if you've heard Japanese music, they go, clink, clink. I was the clink, clink. Well, Pierre's earliest writings talked about gagaku. You've designed the Disney Concert Hall. you designed a number of places for music. Do you feel like you approach the design of a concert hall different than other buildings? No, I start everything from the basics, find out what the issues are, what the problems are, all of those things. So in a concert hall, the most important thing is how it sounds, but also you can have a perfect sounding hall that's not friendly. In a concert hall, the musician plays to the audience. The audience magically emits a feeling that the musician feels and plays better and the audience feels better and they build on each other. And so the building has to be friendly like that so that people feel that. Do you feel like other buildings maybe are less friendly or can get away with being less friendly? <laughs> then I try to make friendly architecture. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of tendencies in architecture to try and drain all the feeling out of a building. There was a big minimalist thing at the end of the war which was seductive because you were at a period of trying to build more economically, more simply, but it took all the feeling out of it. I mean, this doesn't cost extra to have the feeling in it, doesn't When you started out, you hung around with a lot of artists in the Southern California scene, and you've said a lot of them got what you were doing before the architectural world did. My question is, why not just be an artist and do large-scale sculptures instead of, you know, going to the trouble of making a, a building that people have to safely be able to walk around in that has to meet inspection codes and you got to put heating ducts in it and all that? Well, historically, architects were artists. So Bernini, Bormini, Michelangelo, even though they all painted, they all became architects so that it was a noble profession that was considered one of the arts. In our days, there seems to be a reticence to inhabit that region as an architect because it seems counterproductive to working with developers and people that want architecture to be just a service business. But I do make sculpture. I'm making bears and fish. <laughs> That's true. That, that often adorn your building. Think of the buildings having a sculptural character to them and... I think that you can have both. But I guess my question is, why do you want to? Why? Yeah, I mean, why, why do you want to deal... I mean, why do you want to create art that meets building code, I guess? Because it makes me happy to interact with people. Mm. I, I like that. I like the trip, making it, interacting with them, collaborating more than anything. Some of my brethren just meet the client once and give them a thing and say, this is it, take it or leave it. And I, I've never done that. I like to evolve the project with the client in there and get it done on their budget and their time and all that stuff. I've heard you say this before, that, that you love to collaborate. And I'm always surprised by that because your work seems so unique to you and such an individual expression of you. Nobody makes buildings like you. When I give talks sometimes to just general public, I ask them, do you think my buildings are expensive? And 90% of the people put up their hands. And they're not. We've proven that you can build stuff like I do on budget. So that's a fallacy. The other is, I say, do you think I'm a prima donna? And everybody puts up their hand. <laughs> <laughs> they just imagine you must be. Yeah. And 
I fell into the same trap with Frank Lloyd Wright, I have to admit. Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, I've always heard he was a total jerk. I always thought he was an egotistical maniac. And I recently saw the Mike Wallace interviews with him, and he is not that at all. Really? Mike Wallace said to him, Mr. Wright, you've been quoted as saying you're the world's greatest living architect. And Mr. Wright said, I did not. I would never say such a thing. And he said, well, do you think you're the world's greatest living architect? And he said, well, I don't know. He says, I look around and see what other people are doing, and I don't find anything very interesting. <laughs> that was cool, right? And all through the thing, it was like that. He didn't do what I thought he was. So I think there's a tendency, probably, for all of us to misjudge each other because of some preconception or something. What if I were to ask you that question? Because I think it's fair to say that most people, if they were going to name the greatest living architect, they might name you. But I wouldn't. <laughs> well, let me, let me put it this way. Do you think that architecture is better now than when you began? Wow, that's, you're bad. <laughs> I'm going to get a headline out of you yet. <laughs> well, did you see my finger to the world? Meaning? You just lifted up your middle finger, by the way, for those at home. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you I referring was to? I in, in Spain to get some award from the king a few weeks ago. And uh, I was really tired, and they, I wasn't supposed to be interviewed. And they dragged me to an interview, televised, and blah, blah, blah. And I was cranky. And the first guy gets up and says, Mr. Gary, what do you say to people who say your work is weird and showy? And I'm sitting there looking at him. In my arm, it was like Dr. Strangelove, and I just went... <clears throat> up went the finger. It went viral all around the press. But what I said to explain it to, to him was that 98% of the buildings built around the world are not really architecture. And I said, they're <laughs> I used that word. And I said, so there's like 2% of the architects who are working hard to make special places, and I hope I'm one of them. And so don't pick on us. Go ask the other people why they make <laughs> Frank Gehry, a musical piece based on his home, debuts Thursday, February 5th as part of L.A. Chamber Orchestra's West Side Connection series. Frank will be there, too. More info at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right. Enrico, I'm trying to imagine Gary's office. Was yeah. it all, like, wavy metal walls? And Actually, I was, I was struck by the framed hockey jerseys on the wall. He's a Whoa. huge hockey fan. He's Interesting. Canadian, so well, he's always putting up buildings, so he probably likes to see things get knocked down sometimes. It's a change of pace. Academy Award season is underway. For the next few weeks, you'll see and hear lots of interviews with celebrities, shiny for your consideration ad campaigns, and debates about art versus box office. But for the filmmakers nominated for the documentary short subject Oscar, it's a different story. They make short movies about real subjects that, frankly, not many people see outside the film festival circuit. Next weekend, though, a program featuring all the nominated shorts is screening in theaters across the country. And one of the films on the bill is White Earth, directed by J. Christian Jensen. It's about the current oil boom in North Dakota as seen through the eyes of three kids and one immigrant mother. It has already won a slew of awards. When I met with Christian this week, I asked why he chose to make a movie about the town of White Earth. I started hearing about this 
mass influx of people that were coming from all around the country, including my hometown of St. George, Utah. And I was really compelled by, you know, why people were doing that. It was sort of Steinbeckian. It was like this grapes of wrath kind of scenario. Hmm. Uh, And so I went out there just hoping that I could find something that would, you know, be very compelling and um, some story that I could tell. And, And ultimately I fell on the story of these kids. It's interesting. So you're talking about many people move there because all these job opportunities presented themselves when this oil was discovered in North Dakota or yeah. they you know they found easier ways to bring it up and it sounds like you too went there to find work and to pursue kind of your dream of making movies. Yeah, yeah. And and you know I was not the only one. Um, I was one of many marauding people with cameras and, you know, taking notes for news stories. And and I actually knew that um, there had already been, you know, a substantial amount of press about the area and a lot of people looking at the stories that were happening there. And so when I went into it, I said to myself, if I'm going to do this story, then I have to do something completely different than what Mm. other people are are doing. And, And I wanted to look at it from the people that might be the last ones that a, a news interviewer would go and seek out and to really get an unexpected set of voices to tell the story. Yeah, your your film doesn't mention the words environment, energy, politics. It doesn't discuss employment in America or what cheaper energy means. Instead, it focuses mm-hmm. on the narration of three kids directly affected by this oil boom. Why did you decide to explore this topic that way? You know, fr- from the very beginning, I was interested in the voice of children. I'm definitely influenced by, you know, filmmakers like Terrence Malick. Um, James Longley is a documentary filmmaker whose work has been really influential to me. And the way that they use voices of children or outsiders telling a story about, you know, maybe even a major issue is really compelling. Outsiders don't really have a strong stake in the institution. And so often they're critiques or their thoughts are more honest and more direct. And that was one reason I wanted to focus on children. And and also the fact that children, you know, they're always watching, they're always listening, they're always reflecting the things that they hear and see around them yeah. outwardly, you know, and you, in some ways, it's, it's a way of getting at the adults through the children because the kids are gonna give you a less sugar-coated look at what's happening. Smoke, fire, I don't get out much. And whenever I do get out, I don't even get near the stupid oil fields. Because I know if I did, I'll probably just smell the gas and pass out. Burn the methane into the air. They say it's so efficient. But I thought methane was supposed to be pig farts. Be mama so one of the narrators is a young kid named James. Uh, he lives in one of the many makeshift trailer communities that you show us in White Earth. He doesn't go to school. He stays home, plays video games, throws Chinese stars. Tell us a little bit more about him. Yeah, I mean, James was definitely, for me, the heart of the film. He goes through an interesting arc initially, and, and throughout most of the film, he's somewhat critical of the oil and what's happening, even Mm -hmm. though, you know, he's there because his father is working, you know, for an oil company. But he always talks about, you know, kind of how horrible it is. But um, there's this moment toward the end in which he sort of reveals 
that he too is caught up in almost this this inevitable push toward economic choices. I don't really care about the oil because it's not like I'm 18 yet. Whenever I'm 18, I might actually have to take an oil job and, you know, old enough to worry about how much money I have in my pocket. If I have to take a job in the oil fields, and then I'm going to have to say, oh, yeah, I do care about the oil. But if I don't have to, then I'm just going to say, I don't care about it. There was something sort of tragic about that, like this this undercurrent, this flow, you know, that like pushes him toward this thing yeah. that he kind of dislikes and despises in, in other ways. So this movie's only 19 minutes long. What makes for a good short documentary? Yeah, I, I think the key with a short film is that you really, really have to delineate what you're going to focus on. You have to set a stake in the ground, you know, stylistically or with the topic that you're, that you're going to focus on, and you really, really have to abide by that. And of course, you know, the documentary form uh, is, you know, improvisational, and, and there are things that you have to adapt and react to. But if you can create a set of constraints that will help dictate what you focus on, um, mm. I think that what you get is going to be so much more potent. So are you going to attend the Academy Award ceremony? Yeah, I'll be attending with my wife. Uh, we're both very excited. Uh, so, you know, she's definitely out looking for her for her dress. And I'll, <laughs> I, I guess I'll have to find some sort of tux that will fit me properly. <laughs> and if you win, do you go to like a, is there a separate party for a documentary? So like a short party at the library or something like that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they just kind of put us back in the broom closet and they say have fun there. J. Christian Jensen, his short documentary White Earth is up for an Academy Award. His movie and other nominees in that category are being shown together in theaters across the country starting January 30th. Check out dinnerpartydownload.org for details. All right, and that's our show for this week, folks. But do not despair. While you're on our website, you can sign up for our newsletter and get regular updates about what's going on in the land of Dinner Party Downloadia. Check that out. It's fun. We are also ever-present on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker produces our show. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Daniel Ramirez and Bill Lance engineered the program. Christiana Cabal and Ed Morales are interns. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And the Dinner Party Download is part of the podcast network Infinite Guest, featuring shows from the likes of Sherman Alexie and Open Mike Eagle. Check it out at infiniteguest.org. Where the conversation doesn't end. In a good way. Bon appétit. <laughs>